This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. Today, your host Michael Green speaks with the Honourable Frank Vincent. From humble and sometimes challenging beginnings, Frank became a renowned criminal barrister, a Justice of the Supreme Court, Chancellor of Victoria University and Chair of the Adult Parole Board. He also spent much of his career travelling back and forth to the Northern Territory, working with the Central Australian Aboriginal Legal Aid Service. Throughout his many and varied roles, Frank has always been driven by a keen sense of justice, even when that meant putting his own reputation on the line. She was charged with some drug trafficking offences. There was not a lot understood in the community generally and certainly among the judiciary about the use and abuse of drugs and their effects and so forth. They certainly knew nothing of the chemistry of drugs and so forth. I'm not sure all that many of them do even now. But on this occasion, what I didn't know was that my young client who'd been on bail had been hitting up right until just prior to coming to court. So she got through the first day of the the hearing And at the end of it, the judge decided to revoke her bail. Now, this meant that she started to withdraw pretty badly. By the following morning, she was in a bad way when I saw her at the court and I asked the judge to adjourn proceeding to get some assistance for her. He he wasn't a, a nasty man, but he really didn't understand what was happening in front of him and said, oh, no, she'll be okay. let's keep going. Well, after a period of time, this girl collapsed. And so he adjourned the case to the following day. Well, they took her off to Fairley, I think, which was a women's prison at the time. And she came back the next morning and she was in a really bad way. Again applied to the judge to adjourn the proceeding and again this He insisted on going ahead quite unsympathetically to her plight because his view of drugs and drug addiction and a lack of understanding of what he was looking at. So it was stood down again for the third day and I was really quite angry about about this. I arrived at the court on the morning of the third day and I found her curled up on the floor of the cell behind the court, dry retching into the corner. And I lost it. And I said they could bring the judge onto court because I was ready to deliver my plea. They, the judge came in and sat on the bench. I picked up this girl who weighed almost nothing, very, very angry, and I carried her into the court and delivered my plea while holding her in my arms. At the end of my comments, I said, that's it, you can bloody well sentence her now. I laid her on the bar table and I walked out. I was sure I was gonna be in terrible, terrible trouble. Nothing was ever said about it. Not, not a word. It was, a, it became a source of such terrible embarrassment. <laughs> and we had a better educated judge within our system, I'm sure. <laughs> I went for some period of time wondering when the axe was going to fall on me for this egregious piece of behaviour, but um, I just thought this was barbaric and I just couldn't be a part of it.
This morning we're welcoming Frank Vincent, retired Supreme Court judge, to talk about his life in the law. Good morning, Frank, and thanks very much for coming. Good morning. Frank, we'll go back to the early days uh, where you grew up, Tasmania and Victoria. You're one of three children. Your parents, like probably most Australians at that time, had battled through the Depression, and the Depression had a great influence on the formation of your parents. What was it like growing up in those times, in those circumstances? Externally, people would say it was very tough. From my personal perspective, that was not the case. Uh, I lived in a family which was close and, and loving. Um, I didn't know about the affluence of other people. Uh, most of the people who surround us had very little anyway, so there was nothing to compare adversely. And I regarded my childhood as essentially a, a fairly happy one in that circumstance. Probably became more difficult for people later with television and greater exposure to what was available to others that they didn't have. But uh, if these things were so far out of your frame of reference, you never even thought about them, <laughs> it didn't pose a, a, a problem. You, we'll get to your formal legal education a bit later, but it seems to me you had a wonderful practical education in preparation for becoming a lawyer. You had dancing classes and you acted in amateur, amateur theatricals as a young boy, and you actually did clerical work helping your father with matters for him because he was not a well-educated man, and you even helped your father's friends who had little or no education prepare tax returns and things like that. In hindsight, were they important parts for your preparation to become a lawyer, particularly the amateur theatricals? That one intrigues me. I think the, the theatre work uh, certainly did. I had to learn scripts. I had to learn how to publicly present uh, and how to project. All of those things became very valuable at a later stage. And, of course, I very, very early lost any fear of public performance. Would it be reasonable to compare barristers and actors? Oh, entirely, yes. Court presentation is, unfortunately, in many senses, a form of theatre. Your job is to persuade the judge or the jury to have regard to the propositions that you're advancing. Presentational skills are quite important in relation to that activity. And maybe especially so in doing criminal law when you've got a jury as your audience. And they can be a very discerning audience. You can't approach juries on the basis that somehow or other you are cleverer than they are or that your wonderful forensic and acting abilities will uh, enrapture and capture them. That's very foolish. You must assume that there are people on that jury who will see exactly what you're doing and understand the various techniques you're employing. Um, you think you can con 12 people who you've never met in your life before, hearing facts that they have never had to deal with before, you've got another thing coming. When you were 17, the family come back to Melbourne from Tasmania, and you stayed at a place called Camp Pell. Now, I'm a, a child of the 50s in Melbourne, and I've never heard of Camp Pell, and I assume... Our listeners are the same. What was Campbell and what was it like to grow up there or to live there? Campbell um, had been constructed on Royal Park, generally in the area where the Children's Hospital now stands. It was established as an army base for American soldiers. And after the war, the old army huts were divided by thin partitions into eight sections each. 
and people who had no housing at all were accommodated on an emergency basis. People who went to Campbell were caught in the post-war housing crisis. My own family were among them. It was a difficult place. There was poverty and crime and it had a dreadful reputation. There was also a considerable amount of disease in the place. So Campbell was pretty close to being as down market as you could be in our society. And you've mentioned that um, you had a couple of run-ins with the police in walking home from Melbourne University to Campbell and even once I think when you were a barrister, the police stopped you and effectively harassed you, I think. The encounters with the police resulted from the fact that we had no, I had no place to study at home. So I would work in the library until it closed at 10 o'clock and then walk down past Uni High across to, to Royal Park where we were living. The police used to patrol this area very considerably because of its nature as a violent, crime-ridden place. And they would regularly stop me as I was walking home. Most of the time it would be just a little bit of rough handling and some questions. Occasionally I was thrown against a fence or two and my bag would be opened and they would joke about the fact that they were law student stuff and they'd tip it out on on the ground and I would take them home and I'd wipe the mud off my notes for the next day. Didn't endear me to the police, of course. That's interesting, Frank. I mean, clearly Melbourne was a very different place in the 1950s. What was university like in those days, particularly the Melbourne University Law School? Most people look at universities as periods of uh, great joy. For me, it was not a particularly pleasant place at all. There weren't too many waterfront kids living in places like Campbell and the Housing Commission in the law school. So although I had some friends there, uh, I was pretty isolated. I had, however, the tremendous advantage of absolutely excellent teachers, including one who became a lifelong friend, and that was Elman Cowan. A former Governor-General of the Commonwealth of Australia, as well as head of the Melbourne Law School when I was a student there. Uh, he was uh, pretty supportive of me as a, as a young kid. As an admitted lawyer, you started holding Ryan and you begin making appearances, minor appearances, in the local court of petty sessions, currently called the Magistrates Court. On one occasion, you ran across a family member at the Port Melbourne Court of Petty Sessions. What happened there? Uh, it, it was an unfortunate experience. I was handling some small criminal offence down there and I heard a, a call from the cells behind the court, Frankie, Frankie. I looked around and there was... A cousin, he was a, a, an unfortunate fellow. He'd had cerebral meningitis, suffered significant brain damage as a consequence. He had been stopped by rather uninsightful policemen, put it that way, who was a bit puzzled by his strange appearance and so forth. And, of course, my cousin panicked at being grabbed like that and he found himself charged with a whole bunch of offences. When I saw him at the court, I found out what had transpired and just called him to give evidence. And, of course, as soon as the magistrate saw unfortunate man, he just abused the copper and, <laughs> and threw it out. Actually, some very practical justice. <laughs> yes. Now, holding Redlick, holding Ryan, sorry, as it was then... Gave you legal experience, but really the most important event there was meeting a young secretary named Dawn. Yeah. 
So what flowed from that fortuitous meeting with Dawn? Well, um, I thought Dawn was gorgeous. In fact, I still do. And we had a, a surprising amount in common. Her family had had a great deal of difficulty over the years. Dawn had contracted polio as a young girl and had really struggled because of that for a long time. Her family also, like mine, had been homeless and they'd lived in Campbell. So somehow or other we missed very easily and very quickly, and we still do. Th- things were difficult when you started at the bar. You were you didn't come with a background of many connections among the legal world who, no. who could brief you. Mm. Um, you shared chambers with uh, another luminary of the Victorian bar, Fred James. Mm. Um, what was it like for a young barrister starting out without the connections of a private school background, etc.? Well, it, it was was difficult, um, basically because if you knew people, then there was some reasonable chance if you had any ability at all that you'd get some work. Um, but um, when you 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 had no such uh, links, life was was much more tenuous, as it were, uh, and that was the situation for Fred and myself. And we would sit together by our telephones because um, the process of getting work in those days was, again, more difficult. Um, If you were relying upon your clerk to try and give you floaters, uh, then uh, you had to be in your room by your telephone. So uh, Fred and I would turn up uh, 8.30 in the morning when the clerk's office opened And we would sit there until 5.30 in the afternoon when the clerk's office closed. And I actually sat there for three weeks once without that phone ringing. And think of what that does, dear morale. (laughs) I believe on one of those occasions when you were sitting there waiting for the phone to ring, the legendary Frank Elberley rang your clerk and needed a young barrister to do a last-minute thing. Frank Elberley was an incredible showman. And he found out from the clerk that I was available to do this job and then rang me with his client present in his office. And he said, look, I know, Frank, how terribly, terribly busy you are. And I just wonder if it might be possible for you to fit this client into your schedule. And this being very deferential, <laughs> certainly, Mr. Galbally. And he said to this Poor unfortunate in his room. He can. <laughs> <laughs> so the, um, the the poor client believed he was getting some forensic genius representing him and he was getting a kid out of work. <laughs> but it did lead to more work, I think, from uh, that firm, Galbally and O'Brien. It did. It did. I worked on the basis that if I had no contact, no support, then I had to be seen. And every time I got a job, I would approach it as if it was the most important piece of work in the world. But one of the things that I learned very early was the importance of respecting the the solicitor who briefs you. They had to come to two views. Firstly, that you knew your job, and secondly, you weren't a bad bloke either. Exactly, that you'd look after their client. (laughs) I'm not sure all barristers understand that. You may be right there, Frank. You may be right. 
Back then, crime wasn't a glamorous part of the legal profession or a glamorous part of the bar. I don't think there was a, a dedicated crime bar like there is now with distinguished silks heading that part of the bar. Well, the, to start with the other point, there was no criminal bar association, of course. That was established by four of us, five of us actually, John Phillips, who later became Chief Justice, Colin Lovett, uh, John Hassett, um, John Coldry and myself. And we established the Criminal Bar Association and we set it up because we, we really had the view that crime had such low status in the work of the bar generally that the bar council as it was constituted at the time was simply not interested in, in us at all. But when I started, a great deal of the criminal work was dealt with by solicitors. Frank Galbally was one of them. Ray Dunn, a legendary individual in this area, was another. There was very limited legal aid. Murders, for example, were um, allocated out to the silks by legal aid, it being regarded as obligatory for each silk to accept a murder trial from time to time as part of their their duty. And this silk might be his, and it would be only his, I guess. There would have been no female silks at the time, I think. No, there were none. There weren't any for a very long time. And these silks would have been people who specialised in commercial law or personal injuries law, other areas of the law, but they still, on a rotational basis... Did a murder trial. Yeah, and some of them uh, were extremely good. One person in particular who I always respected as a as a criminal silk was Austin Ash, and Austin Ash was a man who worked in family law. Yeah, many of them, however, were quite quite bad. I often wonder about the injustices that may have resulted from that. That was one of the basic reasons that I came to be accepted running homicide trials from a very, very early time at the bar. Frank, you say that injustices may have flown from or flowed from silks not being criminal law specialists, and yet I've heard many criminal law barristers swear by the jury system and say that juries very rarely get it wrong. Uh, I, I agree with that. I certainly agree with that. But the juries get it wrong if the stuff is put before them. Wrongly, yeah. You had a, you had a brief foray into doing workers' compensation work for your old firm, Holding Ryan, but you quickly came back to crime, I think, mm. because you said that uh, in the then workers' compensation system, the system benefited the operators more than the clients. Well, to give you an idea of the way in which it worked, I would get $30 a day more for doing a public solicitor murder trial than I would get for running one workers' compensation case, and I could do three workers' compensation cases a day. And there would be settlements made within very, very limited ranges as you sat in the coffee shop. Um, it really was a bit of a racket from the perspective of the practitioners who were engaged in it. When I went into Compo, I did so because all of a sudden I found myself with the opportunity of making a lot of money. And I, I seized that. But then after a while, I, I, I just couldn't couldn't cope with it, so I gave it away. You come back to um, your first love in the law, being criminal law, really at, at the top of the criminal law tree doing regular murder trials, a jury advocate. What do you think an advocate, what skills an advocate need to engage a jury? 
to get the jury to buy into and accept your story or your version of these events? Well, firstly, you need a psychologically viable narrative. If you're putting forward a version, anticipating someone might reasonably consider it a possibility, then that version has to accord not only with the externally established material, but it has to correspond to people's perceptions of the way in which the world function and human beings interact. In other words, it's got to possess both a factual and a psychological consistency. Now, your job as counsel is confined within that framework. Your skill as an advocate are what are required to enable you to get the jury to see that potential reality. That's not just conning them or anything of that kind. That's by putting something before them that they can say, yes, maybe that did happen that way. That's realistic. That accords with what I know to have happened, what I am satisfied has happened, and I can then interpret it in ways which are meaningful, comprehensible. It is a sophisticated process. Does it help to be what I've termed in the past in in looking at barristers an everyman, somebody that the 12 people sitting in the jury box coming from their various walks of life can identify with? The advocate constitutes a link between the jury and the accused. And what you do is try and link the jury to the accused so that they can get a sense of the perspective as viewed from that position as well as their position. So the advocate has to be someone who the jury can accept as being not too dissimilar from themselves, trained and experienced and all the rest of it. I had a a very good friend who became a senator, Barney Cooney. Barney worked in the area of civil civil injuries. And um, one judge said to me on one occasion, I don't understand how it is that Barney gets all these fantastic results. He can't string two good sentences together. (laughs) I said... The thing is, you don't understand. Barney communicates with these juries. Not a question of technical skills or that. It's a question of real communication. Well, now, speaking of that real communication, looking back at your career, back in uh, 74, you have a good friend, Jeff Eames, later to be on the Supreme Court with you, was a senior lawyer at the recently established Central Australian Aboriginal Legal Aid Service, and he asked you to represent the accused in the service's first murder trial in the Northern Territory. You go and do the trial, and then for many years, you spend a significant part of your time, maybe up to six months a year, in the Northern Territory representing people in murder trials. What drew you to the Territory and to keep going back, and what was it like to practice as a barrister in the Territory? I I wasn't all that keen on going off to the Territory. But I I did that at Jeff's request. And when I got there, I encountered the people in Aboriginal Legal Aid. It was brand new. These were people trying to develop some system of justice for some of the most underprivileged people in our society. Aboriginal people living under sheets of tin in the bed of the Todd River was my first impression when I arrived there. These people were really doing great work and committing themselves. And Jeff had taken his wife and 
two kids from Melbourne. He was running a successful civil practice down here to do this work. I, I felt that I could not do otherwise than try and assist them if I could. But then once I started in that area, uh, it became a, 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 an integral part of my life for the next 10 years. Was there a difference in having Aboriginal clients as opposed to having whitefella clients here in Melbourne? Yes, there, there was some difference, but I, I used to be hesitant and still am hesitant. And I would say a black bum against a remand yard wall is no different from a white bum. Your job was exactly the same. It was just that your clients were less equipped in the Northern Territory if they're Aboriginal people and in in other parts of the country to operate within that system. They just didn't have the knowledge, the experience of handling those kinds of situations that white accused would have. Their ability to exercise their rights was almost non-existent. Did the system treat them fairly? Oh, no way. It was dreadful. That was one of the, the things that really kept me, me going back. There was no Aboriginal Legal Aid Service until 1974. Yeah, there was no health service until that same year. It might have been a few months earlier. There was nothing for these people. They would be just fronted up the court and taken off. It was only about three or four years prior they'd stopped walking the Aboriginal accused from the jail up through the streets to the court in coffles. I mean, these... These are very, very recent things. Were juries the same up there as a jury in the South, Frank? Is a jury a jury no matter where you are? Or I guess juries are people with their own prejudices and biases and influences upon them. Therefore, am I right in assuming juries would be different um, having been brought up in the Territory as opposed to having been brought up in the South of Australia? The juries were initially very suspicious of people like me. They wondered whether we were mad rads or religious fanatics or... or what we were didn't matter very much. The fact is they assumed that we didn't know what their lives were like. There was a lot of difficulty which was created as a consequence of the poverty and dispossession of Aboriginal people. Crime, drunkenness, those sorts of consequences. These were the realities for the, for the town folk in Alice Springs. And it's all very well for people outside to say this is a consequence of oppression. It's another thing for those who are living in that situation to have the same understanding view of it. You had to come to grips with that view of reality. And once you did, and once you started to communicate with them, understanding their perspective about these things, then it opened up magically. I found that it was necessary to adopt a far more conversational approach to juries in the Northern Territory. They weren't interested in your barristerial tricks or your um, fancy use of the English language or your massively skillful cross-examination because they could see themselves with no ability to cope in that, in those, that kind of situation. But remarkably, I found that learning to speak to them improved what I was doing down here because I started to develop techniques in jury addresses and approaches based upon what I was doing in, in the Northern Territory. It worked very, very well. Now, after a couple of decades, I guess, of um, running murder trials consistently, in 1985, the Attorney-General calls you and asks you, would you like to join the bench of the Supreme Court? 
As someone who'd been at that very sharpest cutting edge of the law, I think anyway, in, in running murder trials all the time, and particularly for people who are in very difficult circumstances, was it easy to walk away from that and to accept the position of becoming a Supreme Court judge? And when you became a judge, did you enjoy it or did you miss being a barrister for some time? No, it wasn't hard to walk away. The reality uh, was that that kind of work for that length of time imposes an incredible level of stress. And eventually I, I felt a bit like a boxer who didn't have to go into the ring again. It was almost a, it was a relief not to be subjected to that sort of level of pressure because in the last several years I was handling 20 murder trials a year. That's an ex- you couldn't do it today. Extraordinary number. Yeah. And I, I was just handling them, you know, one after the other here or in the, in the Northern Territory and I would be absolutely, totally exhausted as a consequence. And you've also got to understand for almost the entire time I was, was working in those areas, the death penalty was applying and then it was li- automatic life imprisonment. So there was no plea, no, no alternative. And I, I actually had three of my clients sentenced to death but they were not executed, fortunately. I mean, that kind of work and that kind of pressure just can't be undertaken indefinitely. And so there was a degree of um, release of the pressure, I guess, when you became a judge of the Supreme Court. But you didn't walk into um, an easy day at the office with your first trial. It was the Russell Street bombing of the police headquarters. Well, it that was a bit of a bit of a surprise. What? had happened was that the Chief Justice, Sir John Young, said to me when I went into the into the Supreme Court, we don't have specialist judges, Frank. So for some time you are going to be allocated to civil work. I was appalled. I had absolutely no interest in this civil work and I hadn't done any for a very, very long time. Of course, I had the um, experience <laughs> that uh, many of the civil practitioners were totally aghast at seeing this character sitting on the bench dealing with their cases. And I was on the court for a little while when the Russell Street bomb uh, was detonated and the Chief Justice said, well, I was the most experienced person in heavy, really heavy criminal work around, so that was how I came to be allocated to, to that particular job. Was it a difficult job? I mean, you've got multiple accused. Uh, you've got to give directions to the jury on a, on a lot of stuff, I assume. Mm. Did it cause you sleepless nights? I mean, coming in... Oh, it was a monster of a thing. It took six months, the trial itself, and the pressure during that time to keep everything under control was, was enormous. I'd come into chambers in the morning and I, I'd do some work before we started court. After court, I'd stay in my chambers until about five o'clock in the afternoon. I would then go home, go for a run. I would then go back and I would work for three hours every night, Monday to Thursday. Friday night, I had off. Saturday morning, I would work. I'd have two hours off on Saturday afternoon and I would work some Saturday night. I would work a Sunday morning. I would have two hours off for lunch and then I would work on the rest of Sunday uh, until and Sunday night. Uh, and that went on for six months. Later on as a judge, I would have, I would have severed some of the counts. And had separate trials. And had separate trials of some of the counts. But then I, I, I was not sufficiently experienced to do that. 
and so I made that that game a lot harder than than it had to be. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. Frank, I'd just like to explore a little bit the role of a judge in a criminal trial. As I understand it, as a not a criminal lawyer, but um, someone observing, basically judges in, in the narrow legal sense decide questions of law, direct the jury. But I guess as a, a fellow human being participating in such a critically important part of our society, the judge's impact is far more than just an automaton making these mm. narrow decisions. What part does a judge play in a trial? And what do you think are the important qualities for a judge to have to be a good judge? Well, um, firstly, your primary function as a judge in a criminal trial is to enable the jury to do its job, not to do the job for them or to try and persuade them to a particular viewpoint, but to equip them to perform the role that they are properly and constitutionally to perform. So that means that you have to ensure that the material which is given to them is in accordance with the law, properly explained to them so that they understand what its significance is and how it all fits together. And generally, your job, you have to get them through the process as well as human beings who have not been exposed to that kind of situation in the past who will be shocked, appalled, emotionally reacting to all kinds of, of things. So your job, as I said, is to assist them as much as possible to do their job. And your job more generally is to ensure that everybody in this trial sees that it is a proper trial, not one in which the judge is pushing views or, or there's an Im- imbalance which is somehow potentially productive of injustice viewed from one perspective to another. So that's your primary role. To perform that role, you have to be very, very mindful of the fact that you are sitting there effectively on stage. People are going to be looking for your responses, reactions, seeking guidance from you as to what they should do. And you have to be very, very careful about the nature of the guidance that you give them. That has to be essentially confined to principle, essentially directing the the final decisions back to them and not uh, manipulating them in any way, shape or form. So you have to control your own emotional reactions. You have to be calm, you have to avoid confrontations to the extent that you possibly can, and be be mindful that, as I said, this is a, a, a weird experience for everybody in that courtroom. And all except the most hardened, experienced witnesses are going to be under pressures of one kind or another. And you can you can do a lot to try and ensure that this process functions properly. Frank, at the top of the judicial tree, criminal justice tree, is the Court of Appeal. Do judges do their function, as you've explained it to us, completely oblivious to the fact that 
Uh, they may be overruled by a court of appeal. There may be an appeal from their decision and the court of appeal disagree with them. Or are judges sometimes conscious of the fact that they don't want to be publicly overturned by the higher court, the court of appeal? Judges aren't any different from any other group or class in society. Nobody likes to be told that you're wrong. That's an understandable human failing. Some judges are very confident in the correctness of their own views, some with justifications, others more doubtfully so, and some are so concerned, as as you might expect in any significantly large group of people, to have great difficulty in actually coming to a view that might be perceived as as popular or unpopular. All of these influences are there, and none of us are immune from them. All of us like to be liked and respected, and it is relatively easy then to rationalise your own decisions and your own behaviours, because apart from anything else, as an experienced lawyer and judge, you've got the skills to do that, to rationalise these things to produce the desirable outcome. One of the the real tricks and the thing I think that judges really need to struggle for is to decide for themselves what is it that is actually influencing my decision here. That kind of judicial honesty, I think, marks the good judge. To know yourself. To know yourself. Mm. To know what those pressures are and to say, ask yourself, am I actually doing this because, you know, I really think it has to be done? Or oh, because I, I know that if I don't do this, I'll be heavily criticised. I, I got myself into trouble one stage by saying that there are few kinds of judges. There are those who aren't too bright and they're not really nice people anyway. And they're a problem, but they make mistakes and they can be fixed up. There are those who are not too bright but are pretty good-hearted people, so they're not going to do too much nasty to anyone really. The inclinations are going to get them them home safely. There are those judges who are really extremely bright but are not very nice personalities underpin. And they're a serious problem because they are very, very difficult to deal with in the pellet level or any other level. And the ones that you really, the one that you really aspire to be is one who's not too bad in the trams and trains department, but also is not a bad person. <laughs> that's that's the aspiration. I can understand you getting in trouble if you said that. Frank, <laughs> <laughs> Frank I, I talked, I mentioned the Court of Appeal, but certainly early days when you were first a judge, there was no Court of Appeal. It was called the Full Court of the Supreme Court. And that heard the appeals and judges like yourself did both trial work and appellate work. Did you enjoy the appellate work as opposed to the trial work? Yes, I did. I found that it was quite a a different dimension and it was interesting to look at the work of other people, other judges, and that gave me a a much broader impression of the functioning of of the courts and, and the different jurisdictions. So I, I, I found that I was actually quite comfortable relatively early once I moved on to the Court of Appeal because it, it, it was new work entirely. See, to that stage, I'd, I'd also been teaching at the law schools at Melbourne and at Monash and at Victoria University. So I was, I'd been doing quite a lot of that 
academic side of it for a long time. Teaching advocacy or teaching criminal law or different subjects? I I taught master's subjects in criminal law and criminology and and evidence. So I've been working in those sorts of areas and I've been involved in law reform for a very, very long time. I was on the original Law Reform Commission many years ago. So this was not stuff that was foreign to me and I was able to enjoy that different dimension to my work. When you finished on the court, was it difficult to step away from being a long-term practising barrister or long-term Supreme Court judge to no longer having a daily life in the law? Yes, in short, it was really, really difficult. And it was made more difficult by virtue of the fact that for almost none of my time on the bench had I performed only the single role of judge. For most of the period, I had roles teaching at the universities. I went on to the parole board as deputy chair only a matter of months after I went on to the court and then I became chair of the parole board. So I was operating the parole system throughout and with a variety of functions associated with that. So that there were at least two things I was doing and I was involved in other activities as well, including the establishment of um, programs for disadvantaged kids in the West and so forth. So all of that was going on when I was working in as a trial judge. When I went onto the Court of Appeal, uh, I was involved in forensic science. I was also dealing with a lot of stuff from Victoria University because I became the Chancellor there and I was doing that as well as all of my, my court work. And then I retired and I ceased to be the Chancellor in the same week. And I suddenly found myself after years of multiple activities with nothing, absolutely nothing. Frank, just for clarity, did you retire at age 70, 72? 72. I was the last of the 72. So then all of a sudden I found myself with absolutely nothing to do. I was very depressed and really at a terrible loss. But then I I was effectively saved by a job which was to investigate the circumstances surrounding the wrongful conviction of a young man named Farah Jama. And he had been convicted of rape on the basis of contaminated DNA evidence in circumstances wherein, objectively, no rape had ever been committed by anybody. And It was just a dreadful, dreadful miscarriage of justice. So I got this job to report on that. And then after that, I became involved in a series of different investigations. They included, I spent two years uh, advising the Parliamentary Committee on uh, Child Sexual Abuse. Uh, That was the Victorian one. I spent a period of time acting commissioner for for young people. Uh, Then I spent some time investigating witness protection and suppression orders and other jobs. There were other jobs as well. So that bridged the period and sort of introduced what would not normally be regarded as a sense of normalcy in life, but was my normalcy. I'd like to go back to the Adult Parole Board where you worked or you sat on the Adult Parole Board for 16 years. Maybe if you could tell us a little bit about the role of the Parole Board and it 
now can be a um, controversial body, the, the whole issue of parole and who, who is given parole and who is let back into the community. Mm-hmm. And it's like your ideas on, on the whole concept of parole. Is it a necessity? Is it something which we as the community have to accept there's a potential risk in it, but it needs to be done in terms of fairness? So I'd just like to, your thoughts a bit on, on the parole board and the, the role it plays in the criminal justice system. I think the work I did in the parole board was probably much more important than the work ever did in the courts. And so Sim- why, and why simple is that? as that. The criminal justice system is a pretty crude instrument and we need to operate it very sensitively and carefully. It's one thing to lock people up and say, throw away the key, but the fact is we can't throw away the key. Eventually, we are going to have to open the gate and let those people back into the community. Parole properly operated maximises the prospects of successful reintegration of individuals into society. That is not only in their interest, but it's in the interests of the society more broadly. And that has been so evident for a very, very long time. Of course there are risks in releasing someone on parole, but there are equally risks in letting people run out their sentences and then releasing them. The question is, which is the lesser, which is the more socially advantageous way of dealing with things? And I've always been very much in favour of parole. I'm not always enamoured by the way in which the system has been administered. In fact, I have some criticisms of it that I don't need to embark upon here. But I introduced a system when I was chair of the parole board of personally visiting every jail at least a couple of times a year and interviewing offenders. Over the 16 years, I would have conducted more than 2,000 interviews of sex offenders, just gauging the level of individual risk of each of them, assisted by other people and by the work that was being done in order to make sensible, careful decisions about how we should operate. I regarded that work as terribly important. I still still do. I don't believe that we made the world any safer for society by our hardening of our attitudes towards crime and parole and those things generally. Being tough on crime doesn't always mean that we have to impose heavy sentences. What we need to do is impose appropriate sentences. Sometimes they are heavy and must be in order to protect the community. That's regrettable, but it has to be done. I've encountered a significant number of people who evoked a deal of sympathy from me because of the terrible backgrounds and circumstances in which they'd come to be what they, what they were. But what they had become was terribly dangerous. And sympathetic as you might be, It was necessary to protect the community from them. Others didn't have to go down that path. And you could see avenues and opportunities and and prospects for successful reintegration into the community. And they were the areas in which you you could see real value um, for parole. Frank, as a society, do you think that we allocate sufficient resources to the rehabilitation of offenders? We don't. um, And... We never have. I I saw in the papers that the government has finally decided to extend the welfare protection of 
children in care until they're 21. It has taken years and years of effort by concerned people to ensure that that was done. It's relevant in this context because the unfortunate experience has been kids have been coming out of care at 18, moving from that controlled society very quickly into prison. And that's been our responsibility. We could have done a lot about it, and we can do a lot of improvements, uh, improving of the lives of, of those sorts of individuals and for vulnerable people in our society generally, and reduce crime through that myth rather than the primitive notion that you can control these human forces by sheer weight of government activity. Frank, you mentioned there, you used the term human forces. Throughout your, I don't think immense is a too big a word, your immense experience in the criminal justice system, particularly with the most serious of crimes being murder, are there any common factors you have seen among the people who have been offenders, among the circumstances that have given rise to the crime, or is it a, it's obviously it's a part of human existence and it'll never go away, but is it a completely random thing? Or is it something which there are factors that we can identify and which we maybe should be trying to work at? I mean, we have known for generations that poverty, lack of education, lack of opportunity and mental illness and social deprivation are triggers for crime. We know that. There's never been any, any mystery about that. It's not just anecdotal stuff or the assertion made by do-gooders. This can be, be seen in criminal statistics. It is no coincidence that you see pockets of our society where crime rates are very much higher. It's no coincidence that you see it in areas like Broad Meadows where those levels of disadvantage are probably as high as they are anywhere in Australia. But to do anything about it, that would require a reallocation of money and resources and time that we've never been prepared to expend. It's a challenging sentiment, not a true sentiment, but very challenging to us as a community. In your working life, with the um, enormous pressures you worked under, one, do you think it takes a personal toll or took a personal toll, that uh, horrendous workload that you worked under for decade after decade? And two, what did you do about it? Yeah, well, it did take a big toll. It, it really did take a big toll. And, uh, and at a personal level, it, it, in all kinds of areas of my life were impacted by it. Exercise became very, very important, actually. I uh, started to run with Glen Huntley Athletic Club. Never competed much with them at all because I couldn't train at the level that was necessary for high-level competition and because of the pressure of the work and travelling around doing all sorts of stuff. But I trained very regularly. I used to train with Ron Clark and the others and um, Trevor Vincent, the her, uh, the steeplechaser and, um, ex, you know, really first-class athletes. and World-class athletes. Well, and I used to used to run with them and we would do uh, six to eight laps of Caulfield Racecourse most nights, which is just a bit be, between about eight and ten miles. We would go to Fernie Creek and run up and down the, and the hills on Sunday mornings and they would be 17, 21, 23 and 26 mile runs. And that was what I think kept uh, mean in balance in some ways and was important that these fellows had nothing to do with the legal system at all. They weren't remotely interested in that and we didn't get in there rabbiting on about cases and so forth. 
And I, I, I well, I still run. But at, at Caulfield with the Glen Huntley Athletic Club or no, around the streets at home? No, I run. I still run on Caulfield. Um, I run down there. I, I like to run barefoot so I can do that on the grass at Caulfield Racecourse. And, and it's uh, obviously far better to run on grass than to run on bitumen. It's the only reason I can run as an old bloke is the fact I've been running for years and years on grass barefoot. Frank, on behalf of myself and our crew here this morning, I would like to thank you for giving us such a wonderful insight into the life of a barrister and the life of a judge and the functioning of our criminal law system, and it's a privilege to have you here. Thank you very much. If you would like to know more about Frank Vincent's wonderful life and career, you can read his memoir, A Distant Time and Place, which has many more fascinating insights and stories from his life in the law and beyond. You can find a link to the book at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks and subscribe, rate and review the show. It really helps others find out about us. Your host is former lawyer and Greenslist clerk Michael Green. Our show is produced by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. With COVID restrictions limiting numbers inside the County Court of Victoria, we are currently recording our shows at Owen Dixon Chambers on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue the discussion here today.